the the business about the uh, Arne Havilland bit was that when I when I uh, left school, I my my old man, I said, look, I want to get in the air force. He said, well, hang on, perhaps you better get something under your belt. So I said, well, what about an apprenticeship? So very briefly, I applied to the RAE because we lived within a hundred yards of the RAE, being the farm boy, and they wouldn't have me because I hadn't got maths low level. It was dreadful at school. Terrible. Uh, ironically, I applied to Handy Page. They wouldn't have me because I hadn't got maths. And then equally ironically, I then applied to the what, what was then called Vickers Armstrongs at Weybridge. And ironically, again, very ironically, in fact, they wouldn't have me either because I hadn't got maths. So I thought, oh God, what am I going to do? So my father, who was a solicitor's clerk, one of the partners of his, not his company, but the company he worked for, for some reason I can't explain, was on the, the interview board, the apprentice interview board for de Havilland's at Hatfield. And he said to my father, I mean, talk about savages, like he, 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 he spoke to my father, he said, look, I can get him an interview, but after that, it's over to him. I can't pull any strings, but I can get him an interview. And I went up to, to Hatfield with all the other hopefuls for this interview in the days of somebody, Mike Ramsden, might vaguely remember, called Sir Geoffrey de Havilland, clutching my little bag of bits, you know, your hobbies you had to take along and all this. And I went before the interview board, and I really didn't realise then what I was in front of, it comprised the great man himself, C.C. Walker, St. Barb, Major Halford, astonishing, and a chap called uh, Blackburn, who was the apprentice supervisor. And we came to the uh, we came to the point of of, of uh, uh, sharing examples of our hobbies. And, and chaps at Baltimore, you know, their fretwork pipe racks and their paintings of granny and all this sort of stuff, you know. And my hobby in those days was making, I suppose perhaps quite illegally, homemade rockets. <laughs> because I happened to know a friendly <clears throat> chemist whose name we shall, well, long since deceased in Farnborough, who would actually let me have sodium chlorate. And all I needed then, of course, was charcoal and sulfur, which were easy to get. And um, they were, I mean, none of this stuff about rockets on sticks. These were proper rockets, you see. So I produced these things to this, this uh, interview. Absolute shock, horror, silence. <laughs> and then one of them, I can't remember who it was, said to the great man himself, and perhaps we'd better not use his name, but I will do this one. He said, Jeffrey, he <laughs> said, you own this airfield, don't you? He said, yes, I do. He said, well, it's private property. Let's adjourn and see if they were. And we went down <laughs> to the airfield, and they weren't. And we then came back again, and I was told that if they would take me on in the TH Tech School at Asterix Manor, which, without being terribly unkind to anybody else, turned out to be the finest one available in the country, quite frankly. I'm not just saying that because I was a, an old Arda Havilland. Mike Ramsden was about a year ahead of me all the way through. We never really met, actually, there. 
and um, I was told that I was to go to evening school and I was to get maths at O level at my own expense, my own time, within six months, and if I didn't get it, I'd be kicked out. And I suddenly thought, I got to do something now. And the pass mark at St Albans Further Education Centre for maths at O level was 40, and I got 42. <laughs> and I thought, anything over 40 is a luxury I don't need. As long as I got 40 or more, that's good enough. And the rest is OC's history, and that lasted for five years. And the only, I mean, it's huge fun, of course, I won't go into the boring. It was just after, well, it was after the comet disaster, when, in fact, the main job in the, in the factory was um, modifying comet, comet twos, because BOAC ordered 14 comet twos in addition to the comet ones, but, of course, they never took delivery because of the accidents. And they all get, got foisted onto, I think it was 10 Squadron RAF, which was why the RAF was the first air force in the world to have jet transports in its transport fleet. I don't think it really wanted them necessarily. They got foisted. And the big deal then was to modify these um, Comet 2s, which were in production, to oval windows, a la... Comic, well, the Comic 3 yeah. prototype, uh, G-A-N-G-L-O. And um, so that that progressed. And then, uh, it's, I think it was well, 59, whatever it was, I went into the Air Force. But before that, five of us, for some extraordinary reason, five of us students were in St Albans in a rather splendid hostelry called the Lower Red. And we were discussing the... the um, how can I put it, the uh, reliability of small petrol engines. And it was, well, yes or no and stuff like that. And one of us, I can't remember who it was, there were five of us there, said, well, you know, I wonder if we could sort of actually find out for real how reliable they are. So we dreamed up this plan, which seemed to be completely outrageous, of approaching Ransom, Sims and Jeffries, manufacturers of motormotors, Ipswich, and um, wondering if we could actually borrow one of their mowers, the uh, purpose being to drive it from Edinburgh to London non-stop to see what the reliability of the engine was. And at that time, they were sufficient. Well, I suspect they probably still are. I mean, this is all, this is all completely on the record. Um, and um, they, they, they could foresee, if it worked, the publicity value of this, and so we we set about this, and in fact it was a, it was a motor mower with I hasten to add a trailing seat, four stroke, and it was all done quite legally with the collusion of the police. And so, I mean, you could never do that now with without <laughs> motorways and health and safety and so on and so forth. So to cut a long story short, we set off. We were piped away midday on Easter Saturday, 1959, with a haggis in the grass box, which was a gift for the comptroller of Royal Park, Scotland, to his opposite number at Hyde Park. And we set off, and I've got a video of this at home, actually. They've sent, Ransom's made a CD, a, a, well, a, 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 what they call CDs or something of the, of the footage. And we set off 
at, it was governed to 3.42 miles an hour, which I suppose was about the, the strolling speed of a bobby on the beat, when there were bobbies on the beat. And um, we were piped away from the forecourt of Edinburgh Castle at midday on Easter Saturday, and we went non-stop, well, the engine went non-stop, well, the mower only stopped, actually, for red traffic lights and pedestrian crossings, and quite frankly, at night, we didn't bother with those anyway. And we eventually got to Hyde Park at 3 p.m. on the following Wednesday afternoon, where we had to lower the blades and cut some grass to prove that it was still working, and hand over the haggis, which had changed shape enormously during the journey. <laughs> And um, for that, and I've still got it to this day, we were, we were given, um, uh, as gifts from Ransoms, we were given a, an engraved pewter tankard. Which was to, to we are. Ah, what what happened? Off the no, it's quite interesting. There were five of us. It was quite involved, actually. Uh, and I'll quickly run through, because it really doesn't have very much to do with aviation, but, but to, <laughs> to run through it very briefly, what happened. Johnny Wilson, his parents were rich, and he had an old Ford Prefect. So he pressed that into service. And Ransom's hired for us Bedford Dormobile. And the trick was that I think we did about, I think it was probably about four hours on, four hours off, and four hours driving either the Dormobile or the other car. And what happened was that the sequence went roughly that driver A set off, the Dormobile went or oh, perhaps only about 10 or 12 miles further on, because it was going to take quite a long time to do that 10 or 12 miles. And that had the reserve drivers in it as well. And then the, the Ford would keep behind us, and it would refuel us on the hoof. We couldn't do that. And I've got a wonderful picture of, of, of one of the, the group actually walking along beside it, filling up the petrol tank as we go, <laughs> smoking his pipe. I can show you this. I should have brought this this DVD, you see. And then and then the, the Ford would then pick up that driver, drop off the next one, take the first drive of the Dormobile, he'd have some kit, and so the sequence went on and on and on. And we came all the way down the A1, and, and we got quite panicked with the truck drivers because they were going up and down you know, several times a day, and they'd still see us tootling along. They had this big board on the back. Oh, I should tell you, that the, the mower uh, had to be licensed. I think it was JDX 150. We can check that. The, uh, it had to be licensed. Uh, the only modification to it was it, had, it was being a four stroke, uh, Ransom's put in a, um, a bigger sump because it wasn't going to be possible to, to, to uh, top up the sump point. But it didn't need topping up anyway. It had to have lights, because it was more than 100, 125 cc, it had to have a horn, so we had a horn, had lights and a horn, and I think, oh, the only other mod they did, they put a, I think they put a brake on the rear roller, that was all, and off we went, and that engine went non-stop all that time. And if you ever happen to be in Ipswich, I understand, I've not seen it myself, I understand 
that that actual mower is the frontispiece to the entrance to the Ipswich Transport Museum now. <laughs> Excellent. Because Ransom's had a, 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 a 50 year reunion with this mower. I, I was I was quite keen actually to reenact it, but, but the <laughs> others weren't. And and of course you couldn't possibly do it mm. now with the you know rules and regulations and stuff like that. So that was that. And then and then I I um I did my RAF bit and I got a job with and this is perhaps a sensible but with, with, with Handy Page and it was it was an interesting up at Cricklewood, which was the head headquarters. And at that time, they had the airfield at Radlett, about which more with Teddy Donaldson in a moment. Um, and in you can probably correct me the dates, but certainly we can look at it in archives. They bought they bought the old Miles Company at Woodley because Miles went into receivership. Um, I do declare they went into receivership, I think, about 19... Oh, I can't remember. But anyway, my, my reign of terror with Handy Page was from 1960 to 64, when the writing was on the wall that they were going to go under. More of that and on, actually. Um, and um, at that time, they they had they had already bought the airfield from or bought the assets of Miles on the basis that Miles were then producing Marathons. Remember the Marathon for Gypsy Queen Marathon high wing thing, which went into service with various third level carriers in those days in small numbers. But they they had a hell of a lot of these marathons left over that nobody or on in the jigs that nobody really wanted. And the deal with HP, who was a, quite, a, quite a formidable character, actually, and Plymouth Brethren, and probably better for it. And uh, he, uh, he did a deal, which, again, this will be hotly denied, I'm sure, by the Anoraks, but, but uh, he did a deal with the government that they would actually buy these 48 marathons which would be converted into navigational trains for the RF, which the RF didn't actually want. As far as I know, they're all completed. And probably, better be careful what I say here, but probably flown straight to the scrapyard. <laughs> but that was his deal to buy the ailing. And they, they kept that airfield until, well, I was, when I first joined in 60, they had that airfield at Woodley and all grass airfield and and they uh, they uh, pulled out of Woodley in about 62 and they transferred Herald production to Woodley for a short period of time and then what was left of the Herald production because the Herald was not an entirely successful aeroplane um, it was moved back to Radlett and in fact the, the first proper dart herald whiskey alpha which is still which is now preserved at the what's called the museum of Berkshire aviation which is on the old site of woodley which is now a building site a building um a state which as you perhaps know whiskey alpha was the first one the first two what what happened with the herald actually was 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 um 
seemed to be a good idea at the time. This was before I joined, of course. Round about the late 50s and early 60s, lots of aircraft companies, not least of which aviation traders with, uh, with Freddie um, Laker, were, wait for it, going to produce a DC-3 replacement. Now, we've heard that before, haven't we? Now, quite frankly, the only DC-3 replacement is to start up the production line at Santa Monica again, isn't it, really? But, slight exaggeration there. And Handy Page thought they'd have a go at it. And meanwhile, these, these upstarts in, in Holland were producing this aeroplane with two of these new Dart engines. And HP sent his then sales director, a rather splendid Australian group captain with the unlikely name of Bush Bandit, B-A-N-D-I-T, which was his name, Bandit, Bush Bandit, on a worldwide uh, survey to see what, as they were then called, the third level carriers wanted. And he came back and said, look, you know, forget this business about this newfangled turboprop thing. It's, you know, it's, it won't be here to last, really. It's, they, 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 you know, they've only just sort of got their, uh, their engineers' minds around mushroom-headed rivets. They, don't, they still want <laughs> piston engines. So the original Leonides Herald, of which there were two prototypes, were produced, which was a high-wing, unpressurized, for Leonides aeroplane. Meanwhile, what popped up at the F-27? Well, nobody need tell anybody else <laughs> what a success that was. And the FH-227 in the, in the States and so on. And the net result actually was that, I can't, I don't know the numbers, but you probably will, but well over, I would imagine, with the Fairchild production as well, I would have thought well over 1,500, maybe more than that, F-27s were built by, and what a successful aeroplane it was. Meanwhile, the the, 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 the Herald, uh, there were one or two options, Queensland Airlines for the, the Leonides-powered ones, but frankly, it, if they were going to compete, it had to be modified. Well, modified aircraft, in my experience, never really worked terribly well. And so it, it had to be pressurized. It had Dart sevens in it, like the like the F twenty seven. Hot on its heels were the beginnings of the seven four eight. I think at that time, very successfully. But the avi the aviation traders accountant and the, all that sort of stuff. Cunliffe Owen had a, a, a proposal in those days when there were twenty six aircraft companies in in in. in the country and the Herald was an all-manual aeroplane which was fine which was okay and it worked but quite bluntly and there'll be people to say oh no it wasn't like that at all it was heavy and it was sluggish and it was and because because uh, certain people within the Cricklewood design office were madly keen on spot welding because the Victor was spot welded very largely, they decided that the Herald was spot welded. 
just what some little airline engineer um, with his toolbox in Bongo Bongo Land wants, you know, what is not well sort of thing. So it was unfortunate, really. And the, the sum total, though we put out press releases with uh, huge numbers of aircraft on option, the sum total heralds that we built, I'm pretty sure was no more than 48. The two prototypes were modified to um, the, the dark configuration. And then the first, the third herald to be produced was, if you like, a proper dark herald, Whiskey Alpha. And that's the one that is preserved in BA colours. Because they were persuaded, I, probably by the government, I suspect, to take three for the Scottish Highlands and Islands routes. This is going back to about 1962 now-ish. And indeed there was, I've given it away unfortunately, I think the Handy Page Society have got it hopefully, there were plans, can you believe it or not, for a jet herald, which was not a couple of jets slung under the, it was a new aircraft, which never came to fruition because it was pretty evident that to me that, that HP was, was actually going to fold. Um, and uh, the uh, um, HP protagonists will say, well, you know, it was, it, HP was quite happy to merge with somebody and people didn't understand the situation. In fact, he was a complete maverick. And, uh, this is where I, I have to be slightly careful, but I'm pretty sure that in the, well, if, if I left in 64, and I think it staggered on with the jet stream uh, about more in a moment and until the jet stream was taken over by Bill Bright and then Scottish Aviation, around about 66 probably. But I'm fairly certain in my own mind probably would be shot down in flames, that at one stage, the then chairman of Hawke Cilio, I think was Sir Roy Dobson, I think the offer was made for uh, Handy Page five shilling shares of about 15 bob, and Handy Page shares at that time were actually being sold for about one and threepence, because I've got, a, I've, got a, I've got a five quid Handy Page share certificate to this day. And then the jet stream came along, which, apart from the the appalling Aston Zoo engines to begin with, of the first one was a was a terrific aeroplane and still is. Uh, but the Aston Zoo was was its downfall. It got re re-injured, as you probably remember, with the Garrett engine. Um, but the I mean the Aston Zoo was the turbo maker Aston Zoo was a, was a, was a great idea because it was a it was a single speed engine. And it had the it had a, the diameter was about that much. It was totally axle, and all you did do to sort of control the forward motion or takeoffs or anything like that was just to alter the propeller pitch. But um, various incidents, um, we were pretty desperate to sell it. We I had little to do with it on the PR side, but I was part of the sort of shadows of the team that went to some one or two places. Well, we were we were keen to sell that one airline was Air Bremen, and um, we were right royally entertained, great hostility, hostility, not hostility, 
hospitality, um, which was very kind of the customer, it's normally the other way around. And let me just say that the then, the then Handy Page pilot, who's no longer with us, but of course his family is, is what we'd be rather careful about, had been a, a Halifax pilot. <laughs> And he was also not unknown to enjoy uh, the grape and the grain at times. And the, as you rightly said, I think the boss of the, probably the CEO or something, this extremely charming German, complete with dueling scars, had been a U-boat commander. <laughs> almost, I mean, quite clearly not a, not a Nazi. And... Um, he unfortunately said to Hazel, which was very kind of him, have you been to Bremen before? And I cringed because I knew what was going to happen. And this particular pilot said, I forget the exact number, yes, I certainly have at least six times, but never closer than 10,000 feet. We never... We passed the fish course, but we never even got as far as the main course before two things happened. One was that the the evening ended, and the other was that Air Bremen bought F-27s. <laughs> but that was, oh, you, I, it has been my, my, well, that wasn't good fortune, but it has been my rather impish good fortune to be present when, Three people, one of whom I will tell you about in a Farnborough airship because it concerns British Aircraft Corporation, in my presence have totally destroyed their careers. <laughs> anyway, um, that, was, that was one incident. And then another, another incident, I'm sure there'll be people on flight test engineers saying, no, never happened, never happened. We produced a thing called the Herald 400 which was a military herald, and basically all it really meant was that the, the back door, there was, I'll, I'll come on to the Andover story in a moment, and the, if you like, the proper herald, uh, and that was towards the, the end of HP's reign of terror. Um, and basically the military herald was a slightly beefed up ordinary series 200, but the 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 rear door of the herald was always very cleverly made in two parts so one bit opened this was forward of the rear pressure dome for passengers to get in they could also get in the front but being a high-winged airplane it was quite easy to get into of course and the second half of the rear door uh, you could get past the lavatory into the luggage bay so what they really did was to make this one big thing and at a squeeze with a, an angled ramp, you could get a small jeep inside it. And eight were sold to the then Royal Malaysian Air Force, which was at that time overseen by the RAF, as was the Sudan Air Force in those days, because they were still vaguely pink on the map. And it was decided that we would take a herald, or we had to take a herald, Whiskey Alpha, the ones at Woodley, it was sprayed up in in Royal Malaysian Air Force colours, but obviously it was still registered in this country. And we had to get it to to Kuala Lumpur 
in time for the Malaysia Day celebrations, I think in November 1962, um, to celebrate this great event, which we did. And the then sales manager, a lovely chap since the sea called Rob Souter, he decided that since the aircraft was uh, a short-range aeroplane, he would select, or the, the, the planning guys would select, refuelling places in various countries where we might possibly make a sale, or at least get them interested. One of them was Khartoum, Sudan Air Force again, DC-3 replacement. So we, we flopped into Khartoum, and um, Handy Page was getting towards its end in those days, and fairly desperate to, to sell something. So we were there for, I can't remember, a couple of weeks, something like that. Staying in a lovely hotel with a blue and white Nile merge in Khartoum. And um, it was off in the desert, it was demonstrating this, that and the other. And we were, Rob Souter um, fired back a signal to, to HP saying, look, you know, we're, we're, we're pretty, along the lines, we're pretty desperate for, to sell some aeroplanes. We need to, um, uh, we put it really, really, really rather more desperately, uh, rather more diplomatically than this, you know, we really, really need to consider perhaps greasing a few palms. And HP was really anti this sort of thing, being Plymouth president, a very strict sort of fellow. But he reneged, and, and the, the chap that needed um, attention was the head of the Air Force. He didn't need money because I mean, he got more money than anybody. And he lived on one of these government compounds you're probably familiar with that they would get in the Middle East and those sort of places in Africa, which was sort of government compounds. You'd get about you know, six bungalows and all that sort of stuff, see. And it was, it was discovered that the, the head of the Air Force was actually away for some period of time visiting his opposite number in Asmara, Ethiopia. And he was out of town. And he had always wanted uh, a swimming pool. And he just hadn't got around to doing it. You see, I mean, all the permission was granted. It would be, wouldn't it? You know, little brown envelopes and stuff like that. So it was agreed that we would actually do this for him. All the plans existed, you see. So the local... While the aeroplane was there and so on and so forth, and while he was away, permission was granted and so on. So the local sort of uh, Sudanese equivalent JCB brought their diggers in and so on. You see, and dug this bloody great hole in his back garden, really, for the swimming pool. And I said to Rob, Rob Souter, lovely man, I said, Rob, this is a bit curious. And he said, what's the matter? I said, well, the first bungalow just the other side of the armed gates where the, the place is looked after by the, because all these government people there, which is a house owned by, I think it was probably the mayor or somebody of Khartoum, somebody of that ilk, or maybe the police chief or something of that sort, who also was purely by chance away somewhere. I said, the same sort of thing is going on in his garden. They have some contractors there taking a bloody great hole and we found that in fact they were they were actually making a swimming pool too fast forward 
it was turned out that through the good offices of our somewhat questionable agent out there, we were actually producing a swimming pool in the wrong person's garden. <laughs> and Fokker, again, had got it right. Net result was that Sudan Airways, or whatever it's called in those days, bought F-27s. And we had to finish the other swimming pool. We couldn't just leave our all in it garden. And apparently he came back and was absolutely delighted. So I think that was probably one of the 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 biggest marketing cock-ups. <laughs> it has been my personal pleasure to to witness. And then we, we went went there and it and, and actually the, the, the whole the whole trip to Cartoon was successful. And I think they they operate in fact they, they don't operate it, it, I may have been castigating it slightly, but it, it was an okay airplane. It did quite well up until the channel airways and people like that in fairly good, uh, you know, recent times, isn't it, really? Um, so that was that. You probably remember that there was a, there was a great, there was a great fight um, for an airplane for the RAF, which resulted in the Andover with the, the kneeling undercarriage and all that stuff and the rear loading doors. And we had a, a version of the Herald of which there was a full-size mock-up, what, just a fuselage mock-up at, at Cricklewood. We'd moved on now to dark 10s and dark 12s, quite powerful engine, well, for then. In fact, I think the dark 12 was probably just over 2,000 horsepower, which was quite a lot for, for an airplane of that size. And... Without wearing rose-tinted spectacles, there was no doubt about it that the Handy Page submission for whatever this handover contract was, whatever the Air Ministry, whatever it's called then, was, was the better aircraft. Uh, because being a high-winged aeroplane, it didn't need a fancy undercarriage because of the low sill height was already there, the high and so on and so forth. But it was pretty obvious that, that we weren't going to get it because when um, when HP refused to merge with either BAC or Hawker Sidley at that time, long before BAC and Hawker Sidley, of course, merged together, um, contracts were cut. Victor contracts were cut. We were fairly close at that time. Can you believe it? to selling Victors to the South, South African Air Force. Didn't happen because we needed government assistance to do it and so on and so forth. And, and, and he was being squashed. There was no doubt about it. Uh, and so we didn't get the contract. But we were, in the, in the PR department, we were given the job of trying to publicize what a wonderful piece of kit the Herald was and so on and so forth. And we got a number of journalists along to to uh, to, to 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 fly in the aeroplane, and one of them we got was, of course, that extremely accomplished pilot, Air Commodore Teddy Donaldson, who, as you probably know, if you if you ever met him, was was um, uh, let's be kind and say eccentric. He was great great company, Teddy. Of the Telegraph, yeah, because he held the airspeed record, did he not, at Tangmere and a meteor in the late 40s that put it up to 716 miles an hour or something like that. And 
Teddy um, um, had this great, uh, uh, great career in the in the Air Force, and he was invited along on one Saturday morning to fly in. Might have been whiskey off. It doesn't really matter. One of the one of the companies could have been one of those that were that I told you were modified. But anyway, one of, with with the then chief test pilot, squadron leader Hazelden. And it was Whiskey Alpha because it was on loan to a bloke called Lowell Guinness and it was in at Gatwick and it was in a VIP configuration which had previously been used by Prince, before I joined in 59, by Prince Philip on a tour of South America long before my time, about which I know practically nothing about the fact that it took place. So it was decided that Teddy would come along on Saturday morning to rent it. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the old runway at Radley, but it was fairly short, fairly short. I mean, because Victor had a pretty startling takeoff, as you probably know, the, particularly the B2. And it, there were the, the, the approach and, and departure to this runway was actually over the old A1 to Hatfield, between Watford and Hatfield. And it went up a slope just in case at least the aircraft had dumped themselves in the field the other side which never happened of course and the there was a chap called Alan Booth and he was the air correspondent can you believe it of the Hearts Advertiser he was a great friend of Handley Page and he loved flying in anything so I was detailed as a weekend being the junior chap the PR department to go and 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 sort of not host, but chaperone Teddy. So I got in my little, tiny little old mini and whizzed up to pick him up. He lived in one of those lovely flats behind the Earls, behind the Albert Hall, where Sir Malcolm Sargent lived, and people like that. They married Teddy was married to a very fearsome East European lady. Picked up Teddy, drove him down there, and um, Hugh Scuffham, who looked just like Mister Pickwick, who was the PR manager. Um, he said, oh, Michael, get Alan Booth along and enjoy a flight. So I rang up Alan and he said, oh, yeah, I'd like to come over. So it was Alan Booth and me and Teddy and Hazel. So we got on the aeroplane and we were sitting in this sort of pea layout at the back, <coughs> you know, the undercarriage down there like that. And, and Hazel was in the right-hand seat. Teddy was in the left-hand seat, see, and he was doing the flying, and we roared off, and we went over Cambridgeshire, and we did some stalls and engine cuts and all the good things that you do on these demo flights and so on and so forth. And then Hazel said, look, would you like me to do um, uh, you know, a, a, a quick short field stop? And the Herald didn't have reverse thrust. It had fine pitch, which was pretty good. That would, that would uh, cause quite a lot of retardation. So um, we came over the A1, you see, and at the other end of the runway were the, were the, uh, the hangars, the, the production hangars, you see. And, how, and Hazel came screaming down, you see, over the top there, then with gear hanging down, dumped, he's very good pilot, dumped it on the ground, screeched on the brake, and pulled up in, I don't know, third of the runway, whatever it was, you see, and stopped the engine sticking over. And that was good. And then he said to, to Teddy, um, uh, would you like me to show you an engine cut takeoff? 
you know, three pints of fuel and four people on board. You know, it wasn't going to be that difficult. But they did, yes. Yeah. So, so Hazel conducted this takeoff. You see, and there were brakes on like that. You see, and, and to full revs and released the brakes. And the nose wheel came up like that. And I was sitting with with Alan in the back there, and you know, we 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 rotated, and I knew these hangers were getting pretty close towards us, you see. <laughs> and it rotated, as you would expect, Nosewell came off the ground, and I and, and the and the under we were watching the and you know, the undercarriage broke and, and, and started to go like that. But I noticed that there was no light appearing between the tires and the runway. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh <laughs> and suddenly there was a Staggered into the air, did one circuit, and landed again. But of course, poor old Hazel had forgotten he'd clean the airplane out, he'd forgotten to put the flaps down. So, being Teddy and 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 and, and so on, and, and, and nothing was printed about this at all. That aircraft, fortunately, was dented at the back after the pressure market. And if you go and have a look at Whiskey Alpha over at Woodley, which unfortunately is outside in all the weather, but they look after it as well as they possibly can. I, I can show you where that patch is. <laughs> and and it was repaired and returned to Lowell Guinness by the Sunday, anyway. Our sales guys, with the, with the old Dart Herald, as it was called, um, had uh, a, a considerable success selling the Herald to Newfoundland... Uh, operators um, uh, in Gander and Halifax and Moncton and around that area um, west of Montreal and that 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 neck of the woods in Canada uh, for local service carriers. And one of them was was um, Eastern Provincial Airways. I don't know if these exist anywhere. Another one was called Nordair, not to be mistaken by any of our. Spent Norwegian friends, and the other one was Maritime Central Airways. And I think they bought a, a total, probably about a dozen each. And it was the first time I'd, I'd done what turned out to be, I suppose, several hundred really ferry flights in the, well, not hundred, but lot, lots in the past with various aeroplanes. But it was um, an interesting exercise because. The aircraft, Woodley was 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 all forgotten about by now. We moved back to Radlett. And the aircraft were equipped with um, two modified 330-gallon hunter drop tanks, which we didn't drop, under, one under each wing. I had photo, the photographs of these aircraft do exist, actually. And that would extend its range really quite considerably and we'd take off, we'd leave Radlett, uh, and they were they were handed over to the, the particular pilots then. And I got Joe to go on these flights because we had a, a, a magazine called Herald Facts, which we we published every month. And, and these were stories that I would write. And we had a company, we didn't have a Raleigh Flex, I think we had a Raleigh Cord, two and a quarter square, upside down type camera. And so I went on these flights, which were quite interesting. And we went, um, we flew Radlett to Prestwick, clear customs at Prestwick. And then we flew 
uh, usually at night, you flew to Keflavik, not Reykjavik, but Keflavik. And then we flew from Keflavik, quite a long haul for a, a little aeroplane like that, even with drop tanks, to Sonderstrom, Bluey West 8, which is about, I think, about eight degrees in the Arctic Circle, which was an interesting place, really, because we, we, we landed on a glacier and you went in one way and out the other way. There's quite a long glacier, albeit somewhat slippery. And I think we, we, we I think SAS had a sort of guest house, a wooden guest house there. And all I can remember about that was that the static was so high there that when you took your shirt off, you could just stick it on the wall. <laughs> and then we'd fly from there to Gander or Moncton or Halifax or something like that. And we did that several times. And I think those aircraft performed pretty well. There were there were some Herald incidents. Earlier in Jordan had a very unfortunate accident. The rear pressure bulkhead blew up. Rather like that Vanguard. Do you remember a year, hundred years ago that Vanguard, BA Vanguard, the rear pressure, pressure bulkhead blew out and all were lost. There are only, I think that to my sure knowledge, I think there are only two two Herald fatalities. That was that one. I can't remember what the other one was. But um Having been rather disrespectful of the Herald, it, it, it performed pretty well. But the, 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 that was that. But the French horn thing, um, the Herald was, was only a little incident, really. This is back to the wooden days, but still in the same, for me, 60 to 64 time frame. And I, I used to go along on some of these delivery flights, not, not the ones I was telling you about, but the, the or demo flights and things. And on the rare occasions that the Herald had to be delivered, pretty rare because we made so few, didn't sell very many. One of the pilots since deceased was a splendid chap we may have come across who flew for um, Scottish aviation in the jet stream day, a chap called Spud Murphy. The Herald being all manual, rather stiff controls and things like that, while it was being sort of what you might describe as bombed up at, at Woodley and all the paperwork was done and fueled up and all the rest of it ready for some um, delivery flight somewhere. Spud and I would, would actually jump into Spud's uh, 28 open Lagonda, as you do, and we would drive from Woodley over the A4 down to the French Horn at Sonning, which was then a Watney's pub, and we would imbibe a few pints of Watney's and, and come back and when we got into the aeroplane building it was astonishing how light the controls suddenly were. <laughs> uh, so it was in the days when I suppose you drink driving and drink flying hadn't really come in. But so that, that, was, that was roughly what I remembered about the Herald. And then I... Well, you didn't have to be a genius to realise that poor old Handy Page was going down the tubes. I mean, we started making, oh, can you believe it, uh, hot water radiator systems. It was, it was tragic, really. Chassis for caravans. Um, oh, and we had to do you know, publicity for these radios. The Gladstone, because Gladstone was the telephone number, you see, and the, the Gladstone hot water radiator. I mean, can you imagine making these things with aircraft company overheads? You couldn't compete. And 
so on. And of course, eventually it did go under, but I thought I'd better get out. Um, and I, I thought, well, I better get out before I'm pushed out because it. So I literally tossed a coin and if it came down heads, I was going to write to British Aircraft Corporation. If it came down tails, I was going to write to Hawks Sidley. And it came down heads for British Aircraft Corporation. 